a weird thing happened to me. I did very well, starting from nothing, graduating from college with nothing, got married with nothing, and got rich, at least by a kid from Antioch, Tennessee standards. I had about $4 million worth of real estate by the time I was 26 years old. But I borrowed too much money, and I did some stupid things, and I lost everything. In the process of losing everything and having to start over, I discovered God's ways of handling money in the Bible from people like Larry Burkett and Ron Blue and people that were writing in those days. I was 25 and 30 years ago. And as a person with a finance degree, the academic underpinning, and all the letters and licenses after my name, learning what God's Word said about money was really interesting to me. Uh, it was a natural gravitational pull for me in my spiritual walk. I was a baby Christian at that time. And so I went from having nothing to having a lot to having nothing to starting to apply these principles, and they worked. And that started to create a problem for me because as I started to build wealth the second time as a Christian, I started having these worries and these thoughts. I didn't want to be that guy. You know the one I'm talking about. Have you ever worried that if you got enough wealth that it would ruin your life because you've seen other people have that happen? Say yes. You've watched people who got wealth either suddenly or over time or inherited, but whatever reason, they were okay, and then they got money, and they weren't. It was not a blessing. It ruined their life. Say yes. I didn't want to be that guy. I'd already been through one ride, up and down, because I was stupid. Not because I was arrogant. I was just stupid. I was arrogant and stupid, but mainly because I was stupid. <laughs> and I just didn't want to be that guy. And worse than that, when you do God's ways of doing things, did you know they work? And so I'm doing God's ways of handling money, and it's working. So I'm starting to have some money. I'm out of debt. I got an emergency fund. I'm investing for the future. The mutual funds are building up. I'm starting to have some money. And so I'm worried about, am I going to mess me up? That's a real concern. Worse than that, I kind of got past that after a while, but I started worrying, this is going to screw up my kids. Because you want to see some screwed up kids? Let me tell you, there's two types of rich kids. Screwed up and not. <laughs> there is no middle ground. They're freaks or they're the best on the planet. And I've, I've met them. I've met generational wealth families all over this country. I know a bunch of them. I know a bunch of them that are Christians. And there are some incredible third, fourth, and fifth generation young people out there walking in wealth. And there's some fruit loops. <laughs> Y'all see them. It's called reality TV, isn't it? <laughs> and so I started asking myself a question. And, and, you know, I found out as I read into it that I wasn't the only one that had asked the question. The great evangelist Martin Luther that led one of the biggest revivals in American history and certainly in the history of the UK said, he, he said a couple things about money, but one of them he said was make all you can 
Save all you can and give all you can. But later in his life, he lamented that as he led people to Christ, the very character of Christ and learning about God's ways of handling money caused them to become wealthy, and in some cases, it caused them to stray from the faith because they became dependent on their money rather than on the Lord. And he lamented that, the, that it seemed like the gospel would, in some people's lives, it, it didn't, it, it, because they didn't get it, I guess. It wasn't, it wasn't the gospel. They didn't get it. And, and so the, as they prospered as a result of their positive character change, it caused them to turn and go back the wrong way. It was very weird. And so I didn't want that to happen to me. And so I started studying Scripture, and I started, thinking, and I started looking at, now we've been doing financial coaching through the Bible in our organization nationwide on radio and in classes and in one-on-one sessions for, for 25 years. And, and so we do this stuff every day. I mean, we, are, we, we got our hands on it. We know what's going on. And so I started seeing these people progress through the process from broke to not. And I started wondering, really, what does the Bible say about this natural progression, this wealth evolution, if you will, that I was observing? And I think I figured it out. I'm going to share it with you. Then you can decide if I figured it out. But I'm pretty sure I've discovered a biblical pattern for wealth and how it's supposed to work in your life if it's going to be a blessing. The first thing that happens is you start with what we call now. Now is, I kind of got my head down, I'm paying my bills, I got to pay the light bill, I got to put food on the table, thank God it's Friday, oh God, it's Monday. (laughs) Y'all know what I'm talking about. All the money comes in, all the money goes out, I'm just paying payments and I'm working. And it's not working. I just feel like a rat in a wheel. And that's where a whole lot of people are. They're stuck in there now. They just run, 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 get nowhere. But, but then when you insert biblical principles into their lives, they start to win. And, the, and it's okay, by the way, that you started with now because the Bible says take care of your own household first or you're worse than an unbeliever. You're supposed to take care of your kids before you have some grandiose ministry thing over here. You're supposed to feed your kids. That's not wrong. And anybody who guilt trips you and says, don't pay your light bill so that you can give to their thing, that's not a biblical admonition. You're supposed to take care of your family first. That's what the Bible says. So I want to release you to do that. You need to start with right now. Now, while you're in the now, you're functioning, and you need to be really leaning into the basic biblical financial principles. It's get out of debt because the borrower is slave to the lender. It's get on a budget because Jesus said, don't build a tower without first counting the cost. It's, live, it's save money because in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, and it's live on less than you make because a foolish man devours all he has. And it's give because God loves a cheerful giver. And so you lean into these basic biblical principles of saving, getting out of debt, living on a plan, and and you're impacting your money instead of the lack of it impacting you. And the more you do that, margin starts to occur. And, and, And you start to say, all right, I really do believe the borrower is slave to the lender. And I'm really gonna work my tail off and sell so much stuff the kids think they're next, I'm getting out of debt. I'm not kidding about this Bible stuff. This is real. MasterCard has ruled my life for too long. I'm done. 
and you lean into this and you work like a crazy person and you do what you can do and God looks down and says, hmm, that one's growing a brain. (laughs) That one can be trusted. And so you not only get yourself out of debt, you're on a plan, which is what intelligent, wise people would do with money and almost no one does. So not a lot of intelligent, wise people with money. You have a written plan every month. And you start living these things, and as soon as you do that, you get rid of the debt, and you bring in savings, and you're on a plan, and you're giving, and you're living on less than you make, all of a sudden what happens is you don't have to worry about right now because there's wiggle room in there. Margin starts to occur. You don't have the payments, and you got the savings. You can kind of breathe, and what happens is you look up, and you go, wow. Because you, you had your nose down. You had to. And that's okay. But the natural evolution is your head comes up. And as your head comes up and you look, you'll look towards the future. And we call this now, we call looking towards the future then. Now, then. And it is good to look towards the future because the Bible does say in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. The Bible does say where there is no vision, the people perish as in die. You will retire with nothing if you don't start investing towards the future. Now, when you're trying to eat, you can't worry about stuff like a Roth IRA. That's a theory. But when you get the wiggle room, as soon as you got the emergency fund in place, you got the debt cleared, your head comes up and you say, hey, we're going to start investing so we can retire with dignity. Instead of my game plan is I'm going to work all my life and hope the government, which is well known for its ability to handle money, will take care of me. My game plan is when we grow old, we're going to buy a cookbook, 72 Ways to Prepare Alpo and Love It. I'm going to live on social insecurity. No. Once I get past my now, I go to then, and I start thinking I'm going to invest for the future. And that is faith. Because I just gave you the scriptures. God says you're supposed to plan and think and have a vision. It's not faith to live hand-to-mouth your whole life and call that faith. That is not proper biblical stewardship. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. See, if if you're 30 years old and you say 15% of your income, the average household income in America right now is about $48,000. 15% of that is $7,200. If you save $7,200 a year into a, growth, into a decent growth stock mutual fund and a Roth IRA from age 30 to age 70, you'll have $7.4 million. Say, wow. wow. I mean, what if I'm half wrong? <laughs> Seriously. Where there is no vision, the people perish. $100 a month saved from age 30 to age 70 is $1,176,000 in a Roth IRA and a good growth stock mutual fund. A millionaire. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But you can't look at that till you get this done. And as soon as you get this done, it is a natural biblical progression to look at that. That should be your next step. And you start thinking about your kid's college. How many of you got kids you'd like to send to college? Well, you gotta, everybody talks about it, nobody does it. $166.67 a month, which is $2,000 a year, fully funds a, uh, an ESA, an educational savings account, into, which grows tax-free. It's like the Roth IRA, of ed, a Roth IRA of education. If you started that when you had the child at zero, zero to 18, $2,000 a year, $36,000 goes in, but that account will be $126,000 
when they turn 18. And they can go to school without a student loan. Anywhere they want to go pretty well. See, that's then. Then. Now, as soon as you kind of got those things going, and you can see those equations that I just spit out like rapid fire, and you say, in other words, I'm going to retire with dignity. My kids are going to school. Today's bills are paid. You, you got, I got now. I got then. The next thing that happens is you go to us. And us is when you look around out of your peripheral vision and you realize I've got kids. And you start to think about, I, need to ch- I, I want to change my family tree. Because the Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It is biblical, assuming your kids have a brain and you've taught them proper spiritual stewardship that they don't own it, God owns it. It is biblical to create this idea of generational wealth. It is biblical to create this idea of changing my family tree. That is not evil and it's not wrong. It's in the Bible a lot, as a matter of fact, as you start reading it. Nobody talks about this stuff much. Some of you are going, hmm, I've never heard this. It's because nobody talks about it. It's almost not allowed to be talked about in our culture because money's like evil. Wealth is evil, right? So now I take care of my bills. Everybody's okay with that. I start building some wealth for the future. Most people are okay with that. I start talking about changing my family tree. People get freaked. But that's your legacy. What's your legacy going to look like? It's fun to look back into your heritage and find family members. My grandmother passed away a few years ago, and um, I already had the memoirs that were typed out. She had typed them out, handed them to us, and I had them printed and published and given to each of our family members of her grandfather, my grandmother's grandfather. That would make him my great-great-grandfather, I think. He's old. When he was 16 years old, I'm from the South. He was a Yankee. He fought, fought on the wrong side. <laughs> the side that won, by the way. But he, 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 when he was 16 years old, he fought in the Civil War. He was a member of the Ohio Infantry. And so he came through the South during those battles. When he went back home, he studied for and went into the ministry and became what we later called a carpetbagger which were preachers that came from the north to evangelize people in the south and to lead people to the Lord in the south, like nobody in the south knew the Lord. But some of them didn't need to know the Lord, I'll just tell you. And when my grandmother passed away, I found in her stuff his Bible. He carried this Bible in saddlebags on his horse and rode and spread the gospel in the south. I bet you those were some hellfire brimstone sermons. It even got a sermon notes, a little antique paper clip in there. This might be one of my favorite possessions because it represents legacy, doesn't it? My great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather was a mighty man of God. That matters. That's a legacy. And I start thinking about my grandkids 
my great-grandkids, my great-great-grandkids, who I obviously will never meet this side of heaven. And I think about legacy. And I think about what does it take to change my family tree? If that doesn't inspire you, you don't have blood in your veins. If you got kids and that doesn't get you moving, something's wrong. You're just self-centered and dysfunctional. Because as soon as you get the now taken care of and the then taken care of, the natural progression is we go to the us. Now, I don't want to just leave money to my kids. It'll screw up their lives if they have no character. So how do I keep money? How do I safeguard us and keep us from blowing up? Well, I think it starts with me. And we look at wealth as a reminder and as a safeguard through three different lenses. One is we want to remind ourselves that whatever you are when you become wealthy, it will be magnified. If you're a jerk and you become wealthy, you're going to become a colossal jerk. (laughs) If you're a giver and you become wealthy, you will become what we know as a philanthropist. Whatever you are when you get money, if you have a temper, you're going to be a rageaholic when you get money. If you're kind and patient, your patience will be legendary when you get money. It magnifies whatever you are. And so I gotta need to be real careful about what I are <laughs> if I'm gonna be on this progression to build wealth biblically. Because it's dangerous. When people aren't, don't have the, the character to carry it and they get the money, it destroys their life. I go in and I speak sometimes to sports Folks, I was at a rookie camp for the NFL not long ago, and I was trying to explain to those young men, NFL stands for not for long. (laughs) The average NFL career is 3.7 years. But nothing's brighter than a 22-year-old except a 22-year-old that got a $10 million signing bonus. And I'm trying to go, wake up. Because what you are just grew up and just blew up. And we get to see you in the news if you are stupid. Because now you got the money to do stupid on steroids. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You magnify. The second thing, if I remember that, that, I, that it helps me stay and helps people that I've met who do a good job with their character as wealth comes on board, is they remember who owns it. God owns it all. And so if you start going, I've got $10 million, you're messed up. God's got $10 million, I happen to be managing it. Well, why did he let you manage it instead of me? Because apparently I was better at it. (laughs) Why did he let somebody else manage a billion instead of me? Apparently they were better at it. So that's his deal. He's God, he gets to make these decisions. And I don't have to, thank goodness. But I do know whatever I'm in charge of, those cars, that house, those mutual funds, that business, those kids, that dog, Those are God's, and I'm managing them. And if I can keep that emotional disconnect there, that I don't own it, it's not mine. (laughs) If I don't get that ugly spirit in my heart, then it helps me to manage any amount of money. Because you know what? It's easy to manage other people's money without emotion. It's also easier to give away other people's money 
And when you take ownership, it makes it hard to give. But when you're just managing it for God, you're giving away somebody else's money. If I walk out here and I give one of you guys this $1,000 that's in my pocket, and as soon as I hand it to you, I say, you, you have to give away $100 of it immediately to someone near you. You go, okay, let's see. You just gave me 10. I give them one. I keep nine. I said, yeah, that's the deal. Oh, no problem. Can we do that again? Because <laughs> they didn't have the money in their hand long enough to have become emotionally attached to it. But, but if I let you carry it around for a week... And I say, hey, that money I let you hold for me, I want you to give 100 of it away. You go, wait a minute, hold for you? I thought you gave it to me. It's mine. You suddenly took ownership of it. You're going, I don't know about this thing, giving some of that away. I'm, I kind of got plans. Uncle Benjamin, and me, Uncle Benjamin and me, we're like best friends now, right? <laughs> so you see what happens when you become an owner? The other day we were doing a thing at my office, and I've got a, a an accounting staff at my office among my 400 team members, and, and we were making a donation to a thing, and I walked back to my controller, and I said, I need you to write a check for $10,000 to this ministry, and I'm not bragging. It's just something that's part of what God's plan was. And, and you know, I didn't notice her going, $10,000? That's so much. Are you sure you want to do that? She's like, okay. It really wasn't hard for her to give away my money. If you can maintain that ownership perspective that you don't own it, you just manage it, it changes your generosity, but it also changes your ability to handle wealth without the wealth screwing you up. And then, of course, you need community around you. And the multitude of counsel, there's safety. And you need people that love you around you. And you need to be careful who you're hanging out with because you become who you hang around with. You don't let your kids hang around with Johnny the, dr the drug dealer because you know they'll become drug dealers. So you're going to talk like, walk like, dress like, and make the same incomes of the people you run around with. You need to be real careful where you spend your T-I-M-E. Now, it's okay to do outreach and minister to people who you don't want to be like, and you're trying to lead them to Jesus. That's a different thing. But in terms of your buds, who you run with, you're one of them. In a scary way, you're one of them. Even the way you roll your R's when you speak. So be careful of your community, because that'll help you to manage wealth from a proper spiritual perspective. Now, once I've done that for me, then I need to do that for my marriage, because my marriage is going to be magnified. The problems in your marriage, when you get money, they're going to be problems. It's going to be Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> It doesn't get better. Everything doesn't get better with money. Everything that's bad gets worse, and everything that's good gets better. It's not going to solve your marriage problems because you get money. It's going to make them worse. The divorce rate among lotto winners is fourfold the national average. They got money, and they said, I'm out of here. It blew up. Interesting. Sudden wealth is really scary. And then if I'm going to do that with me and I'm going to do that with my marriage, maybe I ought to do that with my kids. I'm going to start with my kids. I'm going to say, my kids, whatever they are, they're going to be more of it when they inherit this wealth. So they're doing drugs. They don't get to inherit the wealth. They're out there running a life of prodigal sin. They don't get to inherit the wealth because they're not going to be a good manager for God. And it's not my money anyway. I'm managing it for God. So I, what kind of manager would give it to a drug dealer, even if it's your kid? None. So my kids are real clear. Walk with Jesus, stay in the wheel. Don't walk with Jesus, out of the wheel. <laughs> and that's not because I don't love them. 
It's because I do love them. Because if they're doing heroin, I don't want to fund it at my death. But if they're walking with Jesus, wow. And how do I help them do that? Well, I teach them that magnification principle. I also remind them ownership principle. You don't own it. You ask my kids who owns the Ramsey Wealth. They're all grown to a married now. They'll tell you. Because we have family meetings about this to remind you that this wealth is a responsibility. It is a blessing, but most of all, it's a responsibility because we've been blessed. We're way past just paying our bills. And this stuff will ruin your life. And our kids, man, it was tough being a Ramsey kid growing up because I made them work in the salt mines. One of my kids, we finally went from a hoopty when we were broke, finally got a nice car. One of my kids kicks back in that car, and he's looking around. He's about 12 years old, and he goes, we're doing pretty good, aren't we, Dad? I said, we aren't doing anything. You're broke. I'm doing pretty good. You got nothing. I don't want this kid rolling into school, blowing off at his mouth about that. Do you? I don't want him to be that guy. So, man, we were tough on him. Dad, you're tough on us. Yeah, because you have tremendous responsibility. You have to be able to carry some weight. Now, then, us, us. Now, us works like this, too. How do you work with your kids on this? You think like David, King David. Solomon, his son, built the temple. David was, permitted, was prohibited from building the temple because of an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He saw a UFO, an unclad female object. <laughs> right? So God says, you don't build the temple. Solomon builds the temple with David's money. My friend Robert Morris, who wrote one of my favorite books on generosity, The Blessed Life, says in that book that, that biblical economics has dictated that the temple in today's dollars would be $21 billion to build. That was built. That's Bill Gates' kind of money. $21 billion to build the house of God. Solomon inherited that from his dad, David. But he also inherited the understanding that it wasn't his money, it was to be used to build the temple. Now, neither one of those men were perfect, but both of them are prominent in Scripture for a reason. And so, what happens is, I love the Scripture in Deuteronomy. It says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today. Take that back, please. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. I don't have it memorized, I'm sorry. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Choose life, not death. Something to think about, you guys. Now, what happens then 
is once we've done now, then, us, the next thing and the last step of the progression is your vision broadens beyond your family tree once you know you've got that done to them, them. And them is all the needs of the world that God is going to put in front of you and assign you to do. Did you know $7,000 will drill a well in Haiti? And it changes not only the village, it changes women's rights, it changes education, it changes marriage, it changes life and death because they die from dirty water. $7,000 changes an entire village generationally. $70,000 will do that for 10 villages. A handful of mosquito nets changes people's lives in Africa. There are people within 20 minutes of your house, a lot of them that are hungry. $10,000 will change their life. A $1,000 hoopty car will change the life of a single mom who's catching the bus. Going to grandma's house on Thanksgiving and you stop at the Waffle House. Let me tell you who's working at the Waffle House on Thanksgiving. Somebody that needs a job, bad. They're at Waffle House, and it's Thanksgiving. Two indicators, they need a job, bad. Be sure you leave a $200 tip. And just for fun, sit in the car and watch. Don't leave them a track on how to meet Jesus. Don't be one of those people that servers hate to wait on on Sundays because some Christians are cheap. Don't be that. Just leave them a couple Uncle Benjamin smiling at them. It's weird, isn't it? Can't do that if you're broke. Margaret Thatcher said no one would remember the Good Samaritan if he didn't have coin. He paid for the man who was left in the ditch to have a place to live and food to eat and a place to be healed. And he told the innkeeper as he walked away in Jesus' story, if it costs more than this, I'll give you the money when I return, keep an account of it. So he left him money and a promise to pay whatever else it took. I've noticed that poor people can't feed poor people. Interesting idea. Now... Take care of your household first or you're worse than an unbeliever. Then, where there is no vision, the people perish. Us, a good man, leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Them, God loves a cheerful giver. I've got a good friend who's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and he wrote this wonderful book called Thou Shall Prosper, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. He says, as the Sabbath ebbs away each Saturday night, Sabbath in a Jewish home would be Saturday, Jewish families prepare for the productive work week ahead by singing the joyful Havdalah service. The Havdalah service is recited over a cup of wine that runs over into the saucer beneath. This overflowing cup symbolizes the intention to produce during the week ahead not only sufficient to fill one's own cup, take care of your own household first, but also an excess to be used for the good of others. Maybe you should keep pouring, and maybe your cup should be a cup and not a swimming pool. And it's not a thimble either. You decide the size of your cup, but keep pouring and let the overflow be for the good 
of others. This is a biblical framework for a proper way to view wealth. When you do it this way, you're going to do it properly. People aren't going to understand, but people never understand. It's none of their business. This is your job before your Lord Jesus. Take it as your duty. Make it, an ex make it a way of saying thank you to Him in your excellence in this area. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these people. We ask that you pour prosperity on them and that you take care of their needs and their future and their family tree. But most of all, you use them as a way to havdala, to, to, to create excess to be used for the good of others. God, let extraordinary generosity continue to flow out of this place. In Jesus' name, amen.